Letter 116, Part 2 of Letters of John Keats to His Family and Friends. Edited by Sidney Colvin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo. To George and Georgiana Keats. Monday, September 20. This day is a grand day for Winchester. They elect the mayor. It was indeed high time the place should have some sort of excitement. There was nothing going on, all asleep. Not an old maid sedan returning from a card party. And if any old woman have got tipsy at christenings, they have not exposed themselves in the street. The first night, though, of our arrival here, there was a slight uproar took place at about ten of the clock. We heard distinctly a noise padding down the street as of a walking cane of the good old dowager breed in a little minute after we heard a less voice observe what a noise the feral made it must be loose brown wanted to call the constables but i observed it was only a little breeze and would soon pass over the side streets here are excessively maiden ladylike the doorsteps always fresh from the flannel the knockers have a very staid, serious collection of lions and ram's heads. The doors, most part black, with a little brass handle just above the keyhole, so that you may easily shut yourself out of your own house. Hee <laughs> hee! There is none of your Lady Bellaston ringing and rapping here. No thundering Jupiter footmen. No opera trouble tattoos. But a modest lifting up of the knocker by a set of little wee old fingers that peep through the grey mittens and a dying fall thereof the great beauty of poetry is that it makes everything in every place interesting the palatine venice and the abatine winchester are equally interesting sometimes since i began a poem called the eve of st mark quite in the spirit of town quietude i think i will give you the sensation of walking about an old country town in a coolish evening i know not whether i shall ever finish it i will give it as far as i have gone Ut tibi plexat. The Eve of St. Mark Upon a Sabbath day it fell, Twice holy was the Sabbath bell, That called the folk to evening prayer. The city streets were clean and fair, From wholesome drench of April rains, And when, on western window panes, The chilly sunset faintly told Of unmatured green valleys cold, Of the green thorny bloomless hedge, of rivers new of springtime sedge, of primroses by sheltered rills, and daisies on the aguish hills. Twice holy was the Sabbath bell, the silent streets were crowded well, with staid and pious companies, warm from their fireside oratories, and moving with demurest air to even song and vesper prayer. Each arched porch and entry low was filled with patient folk and slow, with whispers hush and shuffling feet, while played the organ loud and sweet. The bells had ceased, the prayers begun, and Bertha had not yet half done, a curious volume, patched and torn, that all day long from earliest morn had taken captive her two eyes among its golden broideries, perplexed her with a thousand things, the stars of heaven and angels' wings, martyrs in a fiery blaze azure saints in silver rays moses breastplate and the seven 
candlesticks john saw in heaven the winged lion of saint mark and the covenantal ark with its many mysteries cherubim and golden mice bertha was a maiden fair dwelling in the old minster square from her fireside she could see sidelong its rich antiquity far as the bishop's garden wall where sycamores and elm trees tall full-leaved the forest had outscript by no sharp north wind ever nipped so sheltered by the mighty pile bertha rose and read a while with forehead gainst the window-pane again she tried and then again until the dusk eve left her dark upon the legend of saint mark from plaited lawn frill fine and thin she lifted up her soft warm chin with aching neck and swimming eyes and dazed with saintly imageries all was gloom and silent all save now and then the still footfall of one returning homewards late past the echoing minster gate the clamorous daws that all the day above the tree-tops and towers play pair by pair had gone to rest each in ancient belfry nest where asleep they fall betimes to music and the drowsy chimes all was silent all was gloom abroad and in the homely room down she sat poor cheated soul and struck a lamp from the dismal coal leaned forward with bright drooping hair and slant book full against the glare her shadow in uneasy guise hovered about a giant's size on ceiling beam and old oak chair the parrot's cage and panel square and the warm angled winter screen on which were many monsters seen called doves of siam lima mice and legless birds of paradise macaw and tender eva devat and silken furred angora cat untired she read her shadow still glowered about as it would fill the room with wildest forms and shades as though some ghostly queen of spades had come to mock behind her back and dance and ruffle her garments black untired she read the legend page of holy mark from youth to age on land on sea in pagan chains rejoicing for his many pains sometimes the learned eremite with golden star or dagger bright referred to pious poesies written in smallest crow cruel size beneath the text and thus the rhyme was parcelled out from time to time alas writeth he of sween venice man hand be foreign they wake in bliss wan that her friends think him bound in crimped shroud far underground and how a little child mote be a saint ere its nativity gif that the mater god her bless keepin in solitariness and kissin devout the holy croach of goddess love and satan's force he writeth and things many more of switchy things i may not show but i must tell in verily some dell of saint sicily and chiefly what he autocreeth of saint mark's life and death at length her constant eyelids come upon the fervent martyrdom then lastly to his holy shrine exult amid the taper shine at venice i hope you will like this for all its carelessness i must take an opportunity here to observe that 
though i am writing to you i am all the while writing at your wife this explanation will account for my speaking sometimes hoity-toityishly whereas if you were alone i should sport a little more sober sadness i am like a squinty gentleman who saying soft things to one lady ogles another or what is as bad in arguing with a person on his left hand appeals with his eyes to the one on the right his vision is elastic he bends it to a certain object but having a patent spring it flies off writing has this disadvantage of speaking one cannot write a wink or a nod or a grin or a purse of the lips or a smile o oh, law one cannot put one's finger to one's nose or yerk ye in the ribs or lay hold of your button in writing but in all the most lively and titterly parts of my letter you must not fail to imagine me as the epic poets say now here now there now with one foot pointed at the ceiling now with another now with my pen on my ear now with my elbow in my mouth oh my friends you lose the action an attitude is everything is fusily said when he took up his leg like a musket to shoot a swallow just darting behind his shoulder and yet does not the word mum go for one's finger beside the nose i hope it does and i have to make use of the word mum before i tell you that severn has got a little baby all his own let us hope he told brown he had given up painting and had turned modeler i hope sincerely it does not a party concern that no mr blank or blank is the real pinksit and severn the poor sculpsit to this work of art you know he has long studied in the life alchemy hayden yes your wife will say here's a sum total account of hayden again i wonder your brother don't put a monthly bulletin in the philadelphia papers about him i won't hear no skip down to the bottom and there are some more of his verses skip lullaby by them too no let's go regularly through i won't hear a word about hayden bless the child how riotty she is there go on there now pray go on here for i have a few words to say about hayden before this chancery threat had cut off my every legitimate supply of cash for me i had a little at my disposal hayden being very much in want i lent him thirty pound of it now in the seesaw game of life i got nearest to the ground and this chancery business riveted me there so that i was sitting in that uneasy position where the seat slants so abominably i applied to him for payment he could not that was no wonder but goodman delver where was the wonder then why marry in this he did not seem to care much about it and let me go without my money with almost nonchalance when he ought to have sold his drawings to supply me i shall perhaps still be acquainted with him but for friendship that is at an end brown has been my friend in this he got him to sign a bond payable three months haslam has assisted me with the return of part of the money you lent him hunt there says your wife there's another of those dull folk not a syllable about my friends well hunt what about hunt you little thing see how she bites my finger my is not this a tooth well when you have done with the tooth read on not a syllable about your friends here are some syllables as far as i could smoke things on the sunday before last thus matters stood in henrietta street 
henry was a greater blade than ever i remember to have seen him he had on a very nice coat a becoming waistcoat and buff trousers i think his face has lost a little of the spanish brown but no flesh he carved some beef exactly to suit my appetite as if i had been measured for it as i stood looking out of the window of charles after dinner quizzing the passengers at which i am sorry to say he is too apt i observed that this young son of a gun's whiskers had begun to curl and curl little twist and twist all down the sides of his face getting properly thickest on the angles of the visage he certainly will have a notable pair of whiskers how shiny your gown is in front says charles why don't you see tis an apron says henry whereat i scrutinized and behold your mother had a purple stuffed gown on and over it an apron of the same colour being the same cloth that was used for the lining and furthermore to account for the shining it was the first day of wearing i guessed as much of the gown but that is entre nous charles likes england better than france they've got a fat smiling fair cook as ever you saw she is a little lame but that improves her it makes her go more swimmingly when i asked is mrs wiley within she gave me such a large five-and-thirty-year-old smile it made me look round upon the fourth stair it might have been the fifth but that's a puzzle i shall never be able if i were to set myself a recollecting for a year to recollect i think i remember two or three specks in her teeth but i really can't say exactly your mother said something about miss Giesel. what that was is quite a riddle to me now whether she had got fatter or thinner or broader or longer straighter or had taken to the zigzags whether she had taken to or had left off ass's milk that by the by she ought never to touch how much better it would be to put her out to nurse with the wise woman of brentford i can say no more on so spare a subject miss millar now is a different morsel if one knew how to divide and subdivide theme her out into sections and subsections lay a little on every part of her body as it is divided in common with all her fellow creatures in moore's almanac but alas i have not heard a word about her no cue to begin with there is indeed a buzz about her and her mother's being at old mrs so-and-so who was like to die as the jews say but i dare say keeping up their dialect she was not like to die i must tell you a good thing reynolds did twas the best thing he ever said you know at taking leave of a party at a doorway sometimes a man dallies and foolishes and gets awkward and does not know how to make off to advantage good-bye well good-bye and yet he does not go good-bye and so on well good bless you you know what i mean now reynolds was in this predicament and got out of it in a very witty way he was leaving us at hampstead he delayed and we were pressing at him and he even said be off at which he put the tails of his coat between his legs and sneaked off as nigh like a spaniel as could be he went with flying colours this is very clever i must being upon the subject tell you another good thing of him he began for the service it might be of to him in the law to learn french he had lessons at the cheap rate of two shillings sixpence per fag and observed to brown gad says he the man sells his lessons so cheap he must have stolen them you have heard of hook the farce writer horace smith said to one who asked him if he knew hook oh yes hook and i are very intimate 
there is a page of wit for you to put john bunyan's emblems out of countenance tuesday september twenty first you see i keep adding a sheet daily till i send the packet off which i shall not do for a few days as i am inclined to write a good deal for there can be nothing so remembrancing and enchaining as a good long letter be it composed of what it may be. from the time you left me our friends say i have altered completely am not the same person perhaps in this letter i am for in a letter one takes up one's existence from the time we last met i dare say you have altered also every man does our bodies every seven years are completely materialed seven years ago it was not this hand that clinched itself against hammond we are like the relict garments of a saint the same and not the same for the careful monks patch it and patch it till there's not a thread of the original garment left and still they show it for saint anthony's shirt this is the reason why men who have been bosom friends on being separated for any number of years meet coldly neither of them knowing why the fact is they are both altered men who live together have a silent moulding and influencing power over each other they interassimilate tis an uneasy thought that in seven years the same hands cannot greet each other again all this may be obviated by a wilful and dramatic exercise of our minds towards each other some think i have lost that poetic ardour and fire tis said i once had the fact is perhaps i have but instead of that i hope i shall substitute a more thoughtful and quiet power i am more frequently now contented to read and think but now and then haunted with ambitious thoughts quieter in my pulse improved in my digestion exerting myself against vexing speculations scarcely content to write the best verses for the fever they leave behind i want to compose without this fever i hope i one day shall you would scarcely imagine I could live alone so comfortably, keepin' in solitariness, I told Anne, the servant here the other day, to say I was not at home if anyone should call. I am not certain how I should endure loneliness and bad weather together. Now the time is beautiful. I take a walk every day for an hour before dinner, and this is generally my walk. I go out the back gate, across one street, into the cathedral yard, which is always interesting. There, i pass under the trees along a paved path past the beautiful front of the cathedral turn to the left under a stone doorway then i am on the other side of the building which leaving behind me i pass on through two college-like squares seemingly built for the dwelling place of deans and prebendaries garnished with grass and shaded with trees then i pass through one of the old city gates and then you are in one college street through which i pass and at the end thereof crossing some meadows and at last a country alley of gardens i arrive that is my worship arrives at the foundation of st cross which is a very interesting old place both for its gothic tower and alms square and for the appropriation of its rich rents to a relation of the bishop of winchester then i pass across st cross meadows till you come to the most beautifully clear river now this is only one mile of my walk i will spare you the other two till after supper when they would do you more good you must avoid going the first mile best after dinner wednesday 
September 22nd. I could almost advise you to put by this nonsense until you are lifted out of your difficulties. But when you come to this part, feel with confidence what I now feel, that though there can be no stop put to troubles we are inheritors of, there can be and must be an end to immediate difficulties. Rest in the confidence that I will not omit any exertion to benefit you by some means or other. If I cannot remit you hundreds, I will tens, and if not that, ones. Let the next year be managed by you as well as possible. The next month, I mean, for I trust you will soon receive Abby's remittance. What he can send you will not be a sufficient capital to ensure you any command in America. What he has of mine I have nearly anticipated by debts, so I would advise you not to sink it, but to live upon it, in hopes of my being able to increase it. To this end I will devote whatever I may gain for a few years to come, at which period I must begin to think of a security of my own comforts, when quiet will become more pleasant to me than the world. Still, I would have you doubt my success. Tis at present the cast of a die with me. You say, these things will be a great torment to me. I shall not suffer them to be so. I shall only exert myself the more, while the seriousness of their nature will prevent me from nursing up imaginary griefs. I have not had the blue devils once since I received your last. I am advised not to publish till it is seen whether the tragedy will or not succeed. Should it, a few months may see me in the way of acquiring property. Should it not, it will be a drawback, and I shall have to perform a longer literary pilgrimage. You will perceive that it is quite out of my interest to come to America. What could I do there? How could I employ myself out of reach of libraries? You do not mention the name of the gentleman who assists you. Tis an extraordinary thing. How could you do without that assistance? I will not trust myself with brooding over this. The following is an extract from a letter of Reynolds to me. I am glad to hear you are getting on so well with your writings. I hope you are not neglecting the revision of your poems for the press, from which I expect more than you do. The first thought that struck me on reading your last was to mortgage a poem to Murray, but on more consideration I made up my mind not to do so. My reputation is very low. He would not have negotiated my bill of intellect, or given me a very small sum. I should have bound myself down for some time. Tis best to meet present misfortunes, not for a momentary good to sacrifice great benefits which one's own untrammeled and free industry may bring one in the end. In all this do never think of me as in any way unhappy. I shall not be so. I have a great pleasure in thinking of my responsibility to you, and shall do myself the greatest luxury, if I can succeed in any way, so as to be of assistance to you. We shall look back upon these times, even before our eyes are at all dim. I am convinced of it. But be careful of those Americans. I could almost advise you to come whenever you have the sum of five hundred pound to England. Those Americans will, I am afraid, still fleece you. If ever you think of such a thing, you must bear in mind the very different state of society here, the immense difficulties of the times, the great sum required per annum 
to maintain yourself in any decency in fact the whole is with providence i know not how to advise you but by advising you to advise with yourself in your next tell me at large your thoughts about america what chance there is of succeeding there for it appears to me you have as yet been somehow deceived i cannot help thinking mr audubon has deceived you i shall not like the sight of him i shall endeavour to avoid seeing him you see how puzzled i am i have no meridian to fix you to being the slave of what is to happen i think i may bid you finally remain in good hopes and not tease yourself with my changes and variations of mind if i say nothing decisive in any one particular part of my letter you may glean the truth from the whole pretty correctly you may wonder why i had not put your affairs with abby in train on receiving your letter before last to which there will reach you a short answer dated from shanklin i did write and speak to abby but to no purpose your last with the enclosed note has appealed home to him he will not see the necessity of a thing till he is hit in the mouth twill be effectual i am sorry to mix up foolish and serious things together but in writing so much i am obliged to do so and i hope sincerely the tenor of your mind will maintain itself better in the course of a few months i shall be as good an italian scholar as i am a french one i am reading ariosto at present not managing more than six or eight stanzas at a time when i have done this language so as to be able to read it tolerably well i shall set myself to get complete in latin and there my learning must stop i do not think of returning upon greek i would not go even so far if i were not persuaded of the power the knowledge of any language gives one the fact is i like to be acquainted with foreign languages it is besides a nice way of filling up intervals etc also the reading of dante is well worth the while and in latin there is a fund of curious literature of the middle ages the works of many great men aretino and sanazzaro and machiavelli i shall never become attached to a foreign idiom so as to put it into my writings the paradise lost though so fine in itself is a corruption of our language it should be kept as it is unique a curiosity a beautiful grand curiosity the most remarkable production of the world a northern dialect accommodating itself to greek and latin inversions and intonations the purest english i think or what ought to be the purest is chatterton's the language had existed long enough to be entirely uncorrupted of chaucer's gallicisms and still the old words are used chatterton's language is entirely northern i prefer the native music of it to milton's cut by feet i have but lately stood on my guard against milton life to him would be death to me miltonic verse cannot be written but it is the verse of art i wish to devote myself to another verse alone friday september twenty four i have been obliged to intermit your letter for two days this being friday morning from having had to attend to other correspondence brown who is at bedhampton went thence to chichester and i am still directing my letters bedhampton there arose a misunderstanding about them i began to suspect my letters had been stopped from curiosity 
however yesterday brown had four letters for me all in a lump and the matter is cleared up brown complained very much in his letter to me of yesterday of the great alteration the disposition of dilk has undergone he thinks of nothing but political justice and his boy now the first political duty a man ought to have a mind to is the happiness of his friends i wrote brown a comment on the subject wherein i explained what i thought of dilk's character which resolved itself into this conclusion that dilk was a man who cannot feel he has a personal identity unless he has made up his mind about everything the only means of strengthening one's intellect is to make up one's mind about nothing to let the mind be a thoroughfare for all thoughts not a select party the genus is not scarce in population all the stubborn arguers you meet with are of the same brood they never begin upon a subject they have not pre-resolved on they want to hammer their nail into you and if you have the point still they think you wrong dilk will never come at a truth as long as he lives because he is always trying at it he is a godwin methodist i must not forget to mention that your mother showed me the lock of hair tis of a very dark color for so young a creature then it is two feet in length i shall not stand a barleycorn higher that's not fair one ought to go on growing as well as others at the end of this sheet i shall stop for the present and send it off you may expect another letter immediately after it as i never know the day of the month but by chance i put here that this is the twenty-fourth september i would wish you here to stop your ears for i have a word or two to say to your wife my dear sister in the first place i must quarrel with you for sending me such a shabby piece of paper though that is in some degree made up for by the beautiful impression of the seal you should like to know what i was doing the first of may let me see i cannot recollect i have all the examiners ready to send they will be a great treat to you when they reach you i shall pack them up when my business with abby has come to a good conclusion and the remittance is on the road to you i have dealt round your best wishes like a pack of cards but being always given to cheat myself i have turned up ace you see i am making game of you i see you are not at all happy in that america england however would not be over happy for you if you were here perhaps twould be better to be teased here than there i must preach patience to you both no step hasty or injurious to you must be taken you say let one large sheet be all to me you will find more than that in different parts of this packet for you certainly i have been caught in rains a catch in the rain occasioned my last sore throat but as for the red-haired girls upon my word i do not recollect ever having seen one are you quizzing me or miss waldegrave when you talk of promenading as for pun-making i wish it was as good a trade as pin-making there is very little business of that sort going on now we struck for wages like the manchester weavers but to no purpose so we are all out of employ i am more lucky than some you see by having an opportunity of exporting a few getting into a little foreign trade which is a comfortable thing i wish one could get change for a pun in silver currency i would give three and a half any night 
to get into Drury Pit, but they won't ring at all. No more will notes, you will say, but notes are different things, though they make together a pun note as the term goes. If I were your son, I shouldn't mind you, though you wrapped me with the scissors. But, Lord, I should be out of favor when the little un be come. You have made an uncle of me, you have, and I don't know what to make of myself. I suppose next there will be a nevy. You say in my last, write directly. I have not received your letter above ten days. The thought of your little girl puts me in mind of a thing I heard a Mr. Lamb say. A child in arms was passing by towards its mother, in the nurse's arms. Lamb took hold of the long clothes, saying, Where, God bless me, where does it leave off? Saturday, September 25 If you would prefer a joke or two to anything else, I have two for you fresh hatched, just riz, as the baker's wife say by the rolls. The first I played off on Brown, the second I played on myself. Brown, when he left me, Keats, says he, my good fellow, staggering upon his left heel and fetching an irregular pirouette with his right. Keats, says he, depressing his left eyebrow and elevating his right one, though by the way at the moment I did not know which was the right one. Keats, says he, still in the same posture, but furthermore both his hands in his waistcoat pockets and putting out his stomach. Keats, my good fellow, says he, interlarding his exclamation with a certain ventriloquial parenthesis. No, this is all a lie. He was as sober as a judge when a judge happens to be sober, and said, Keats, if any letters come for me, do not forward them, but open them, and give me the morrow of them in a few words. At the time I wrote my first to him, no letter had arrived. I thought I would invent one and, as I had not time to manufacture a long one, I dabbed off a short one, and that was the reason of the joke succeeding beyond my expectations. Brown led his house to a Mr. Benjamin, a Jew. Now the water which furnishes the house is in a tank, sided with a composition of lime, and the lime impregnates the water unpleasantly. Taking advantage of this circumstance, I pretended that Mr. Benjamin had written the following short note. Sir, by drinking your damned tank water, I have got the gravel. What reparation can you make to me and my family? Nathan Benjamin. By a fortunate hit, I hit upon his right heathen name, his right pronomen. Brown, in consequence, appears, wrote to the surprised Mr. Benjamin the following. Sir, I cannot offer you any remuneration until your gravel shall have formed itself into a stone, when I will cut you with pleasure. C. Brown This of Brown's Mr. Benjamin has answered, insisting on an explanation of this singular circumstance. B. says, When I read your letter and his following, I roared, and in came Mr. Snoop, who on reading them seemed likely to burst the hoops of his fat sides. So the joke is told well. Now for the one I played on myself. I must first give you the scene and the dramatis personae. There are an old major and his youngish wife here in the next apartments to me. 
his bedroom door opens at an angle with my sitting-room door yesterday i was reading as demurely as a parish clerk when i heard a rap at the door i got up and opened it no one was to be seen i listened and heard someone in the major's room not content with this i went upstairs and down looked in the cupboards and watched at last i set myself to read again not quite so demurely when there came a louder rap i was determined to find out who it was i looked out the staircases were all silent this must be the major's wife said i at all events i will see the truth so i rapped me at the major's door and went in to the utter surprise and confusion of the lady who was in reality there after a little explanation which i can no more describe than fly i made my retreat from her convinced of my mistake she is to all appearance a silly body and is really surprised about it she must have been for i have discovered that a little girl in the house was the wrapper i assure you she has nearly made me sneeze if the lady tells tits i shall put a very grave and moral face on the matter with the old gentleman and make his little boy a present of a humming top monday september twenty seven my dear george this monday morning the twenty seventh i have received your last dated twelfth july you say you have not heard from england for three months then my letter from shanklin written i think at the end of june has not reached you you shall not have cause to think i neglect you i have kept this back a little time in expectation of hearing from mr abbey you will say i might have remained in town to be abbey's messenger in these affairs that i offered him but he in his answer convinced me that he was anxious to bring the business to an issue he observed that by being himself the agent in the whole people might be more expeditious you say you have not heard for three months and yet your letters have the tone of knowing how our affairs are situated by which i conjecture i acquainted you with them in a letter previous to the shanklin one that i may not have done to be certain i will here state that it is in consequence of mrs jennings threatening a chancery suit that you have been kept from the receipt of monies and myself deprived of any help from abby i am glad you say you keep up your spirits i hope you make a true statement on that score still keep them up for we are all young i can only repeat here that you shall hear from me again immediately notwithstanding this bad intelligence i have experienced some pleasure in receiving so correctly two letters from you as it gives me if i may say so a distant idea of a proximity this last improves upon my little niece kiss her for me do not fret yourself about the delay of money on account of my immediate opportunity being lost for in a new country whoever has money must have an opportunity of employing it in many ways the report runs now more in favour of keen stopping in england if he should i have confident hopes of our tragedy if he invokes the hot-blooded character of ludolf and he is the only actor that can do it he will add to his own fame and improve my fortune i will give you a half dozen lines of it before i part as a specimen not as a swordsman would i pardon crave but as a son the bronze centurion long toiled in foreign wars 
and whose high deeds are shaded in a forest of tall spears known only to his troop hath greater plea of favour with my sire than i can have believe me my dear brother and sister your affectionate and anxious brother john keats end of letter one hundred and sixteen part two